The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our special guest is Joe Rodota. Hey political strategist and author. In fact, the last time we talked, you did that book on the Watergate, yep. not the scandal on the on the building. The right? biography of the actual physical place, yeah. And Joe now has uh, Oppofile out, uh, a podcast on opposition research, which has always fascinated me. So why opposition research? Why'd you do that? Well, uh, I have been asked for about 10, 15 years you know, to sort of talk about my cold cases or my war stories. Um, and uh, in this you know, current environment, uh, opposition research is kind of back in back in the season, right? Yeah. Um, I would, uh, I, I personally, I was in in the field opposition research, as some people may know, since like '84. So I had, you know, my career as a partisan opposition researcher extends from basically 1984 to 1994, re-election of Pete Wilson, and then I returned. Um, to do uh, the re-election of Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, so I kind of uh, see all the, I've seen the various phases of opposition research. Uh, people always uh, uh, ask me about, you know, you know, the process, the practice, some of the history. And, um, and so I thought it would be a good opportunity to uh, sh- you know, share some more stories and also round up opposition researchers uh, who are friends and colleagues uh, from both parties over the last 20, 30 years and you know, look at it also through their eyes. So there are a lot of them out there, right? I always think of OPPO researchers as sort of a select few, at least that was my experience in Sacramento, not, not many, um, but now it's everywhere. I think there are hundreds of opposition researchers. In, in the old days, it was a handful of people within the campaigns and the party organizations. Yeah. And then uh, some people started small businesses. So that would be my firm, which I started in 1988 out here in California and closed it to go work for Governor Wilson. A. Smith had an opposition research firm before he became a general consultant. His partner was Rahm Emanuel. They hired a man named Michael Avenatti at one point. Um, and then you have the development of the Oppo Research Super PACs. And so that's American Bridge, America Rising. And so you have these uh, huge organizations now that are solely focused on opposition. So they're research. exclusive. They get donations and they fund Oppo Research. They get, some of them are is donations, but also in a way they're, um, they're large companies. I think there's like LLCs uh-huh. um, also. So uh, and these, are, these are entities that employ you know, several hundred people. Um, and so one of the things that's happened over the years is opposition research has gone from this secret thing you don't talk about, like don't meet the opposition researcher, he, uh, he and she, he, they, they are working on the nuclear codes, you know, or something. That's now, what I like. I like it's like pornography in Victorian England. Right? Well, <laughs> it's all there, but we didn't, nobody talked about well, it. Well, I don't, I don't, it can be pornographic, I suppose. <laughs> um, but uh, and now it's it's very much out there. So the first episode sort of kind of gets into it from today, which is 
uh, that people openly talk about opposition research and the opposition researchers are are out there right and um, and so that's uh, one of the you know arcs of the story is uh, and over the course of this of the this first season which will run through the election um, we will tell the sort of trace the history of opposition research explain the different you know the mechanics of it the pra- different you know act functions you know for example uh, tracking what is tracking you know going out to a site and recording a candidate there's also something called the vulnerability study which is uh when you're hired as opposition researcher to look at your candidate not the opposition um you know the role of fact checking rapid response that sort of thing and then also uh, a comment on a rolling basis on uh, oppo research in the 2020 election how much of opposition research relies on public documents it it seemed like uh, People I've, de- I've dealt with who know this stuff, it, I'd say 90% uh, is out there in public documents, public records of some sort, but are difficult to find. But once you get them and you assemble them, uh, you, ba- you can give it to a reporter who can do a story on it based on the public document. The reporter might not have, probably didn't see that anyway, but they get it as a package and do a great story. And the oppo research person steps back and is sort of out of the equation at that point. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, it should all be, um, well, it all has to be public information uh, or about to be public information. Yeah. So it can be something, something that's sort of sitting there, you know, a person who's never told the story before, that sort of thing. Um, the role of the media is interesting because that used to be the you, you, your path to the voter for this material, for, you know, a campaign has can go, go through the press, which legitimizes it in a way. You lose control of it, which, uh, but there's the upside of the reporter builds on it and figures out something that you sure. c- you couldn't figure out, right? Well, the reporter would also probably fact check it. Fact check they report and, and also do interviews, right? Um, um, and then, of course, you could put it in directly into advertising, but now there's a model where you just put it out there. Like the uh, some of the or campaigns and organizations just release their opposition research. They just put it out on the web, and that's oh. and it just goes. You know, so so they don't even wait for the um, especially in the era of social media. You don't really have to wait for the press. Um, but yeah, the, the main point is uh, it's a lot of digging, and it's also thinking through what's you know, what's the narrative here, and why is. Why are one why why is one vote in Congress more interesting than another vote? You know, it's it's all about the context. It seems like the things you would find and focus on have really changed. You know, when Gary Hart was discovered to have been goofing around in the monkey business, that ended his career. I'm not sure today that would really do it. However, if you had someone that uh, wore blackface or made a racial comment or was disparaging to the LGBT community in the 70s or 80s, people would have said, yeah, who cares? And now that could end your career. And can you talk about how, uh, as an opposition researcher, you you try to weigh what's going to have an impact? I mean, obviously, that's changed a lot. Well, a, a researcher's job is to uh, efficiently assemble the intellectual property of the of the negative campaign, basically the, the characterization of the opponent. And so, part of being efficient is you don't look for things that nobody's ever going to have an interest in. Um, so you have to be um, on top of like the, the nature of the campaign and the moment. 
uh, in a future episode, we're going to talk about this. We're going to be looking um, right now at how opposition researchers are evaluating their opponents on issues involving racial inequality and policing. Because in the 90s, it would have been, it's the reverse, right? So it's, uh, you're campaigning in the 90s and you are, if, you're, if your career extends back to the 90s, which it does, for example, with um, Vice President Biden, and actually, frankly, also uh, Trump, you're making a lot of statements and pushing the envelope hard on things like three strikes and, um, and um, tougher, uh, more cops on the street, tougher you know, penalties. And so, you know, look, that's, that's for example, that's where the opposition researchers are going now, is they're looking in the 90s for statements that uh, in the current context would, be, would, would be, appear to be tone deaf, right? So, you know, so a, a piece of information, there's a time for, you know, there's a good time for certain narratives and there's a bad time for certain narratives and it changes. Has, has social media changed? I'm thinking Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. Has it changed the way you release information? Well, so the opposite researcher, with the exception of the super PACs, don't do a lot of releasing. You know, the war rooms do the releasing and the campaign communication. So we kind of sometimes it's a little artificial, but, you, but the researcher is looking at the material and not always looking at the audience, right? Um, so from a researcher's perspective, uh, social media has changed uh, vetting and uh, vulnerability studies. So um, I'll give you an example. There's the candidate in um, the Central Valley who is the Republican nominee and it's, re- it's revealed that his tweets, his social media history is just beyond the pale and outrageous and he claims he didn't have now he claims he didn't have control of the account and somebody's posting this stuff you know and the party's walked away from that nominee so although if i remember right the college republicans renewed their endorsement of him is that correct i don't know i, I think know. they so i, I look at, did i look at it from uh, you know the mechanics from my you know former career as a partisan opposition researcher it's like okay well who didn't vet the guy i mean how hard is that that is that is a couple days worth of work on a on a congressional seat that is competitive, and every congressional seat is is high priority if it's competitive. And so, to, to me, it was just a good example of um, something hiding in plain sight that didn't get looked at. And that's uh, and that and the opposition researcher uh, would have in a week been able to sort all that out. Well, and, and speaking of hiding in plain sight, so the most high profile sort of scandal that derailed a a gimme election was in Alabama where the Senate seat was up because Jeff Sessions had accepted the attorney general uh, office and the former Supreme court justice of Alabama was discovered to have had all these relationships with young women uh, or alleged young (laughs) alleged relationships. And my, my first thing when that story broke is how did no one in, come up with this earlier. I mean, he was a very high-profile uh, Alabama politician for, I don't know, decades. And then suddenly these women come out of the woodwork, and there were a bunch of them. So I, I think it's likely that it was true, but it was just strange to me that it didn't burp up until it goes into a national election. And how how did opposition researchers for his opponents not find this stuff decades ago? Yeah, I don't know. Um, there is a... Uh, a, a it, there's been other situations where opposition researchers have known of a vulnerability on the other side 
and have waited, the campaign has waited until that candidate is the nominee and it is too late to replace him, and then everything drops. Right, so that's... It's an ugly world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, it's sort of like bleach. Opposition research is sort of like bleach, you know, used appropriately. (laughs) It's a disinfectant of our political process. Used inappropriately, it's probably dangerous for for one or both, for the consumer, you know. Can you think of any examples in California where uh, the Oppo research played a definitive role in getting someone elected or not elected? Well, um, yes. Yeah. So one of them is, is uh, w- uh, I'll give you one of my my war stories, which we may go into um, in the show. It depends on, you know, how things go. But um, I was hired, it's a, a ballot initiative um, matter. So I was hired by the timber industry uh, back in 1990 to um, uh, help uh, defeat an initiative called Forests Forever. And it was a initiative that would have effectively eliminated most timber harvesting in California. And it was a big priority of the Sierra Club. And it was financed almost entirely by a man named Hal Arbit, who has since passed away. And Mr. Arbit was, uh, was uh, not, um, not very visible in the media, had very small, a handful of um, news stories about him. And um, he, he just said, I just, I love trees. I just, I was I'm having this emotional experience when I was in a forest and I got the tour and I just decided I had money. I decided I wanted to help. So I, um, at the time, I was uh, researching Diane Feinstein for Pete Wilson. So Diane Feinstein was the uh, a Rep- Democratic nominee for governor in 1990. Pete Wilson was the Re- Republican nominee for governor in 1990. And, in, and of course, I was having to review anything that was public about Dianne Feinstein's husband, Dick Blum, who is an investor, man, a professional money manager, right? And had a, a vested at a certain level. So he had to record uh, and disclose to the SEC uh, the investments he was making with his clients' money. Right? So uh, I, I requested the same files of this guy, Hal Arbit. And when they arrived, this is before things were online, I would just get a box of oh, yeah. printouts, you know, and it would cost thousands of dollars to get these things printed out and show up. Right? So uh, I go through Mr. Arbit's uh, disclosures to the SEC and I discover that while he is funding the signature gathering for this initiative, he is simultaneously investing millions of dollars buying stock in timber companies that have forests outside of California. And so what happens, what he was, I guess, planning to do is if if the California forests are closed, then the Oregon forests become more valuable. And so the companies that he was invest buying stock in would have a bump. And that, uh, so I've discovered that, that uh, eventually found its way into the press and it just, it, it just decapitated the campaign because people now had a, re- they say, well, now we see what this is all about. And the Sierra, it, my understanding is the Sierra Club had no idea that he did not disclose this to. One would think. Yeah, they had no idea. So that's a good, that's, that's a good example um, uh, of somebody in, Cal- somebody in California where it really uh, turned the tide. Often it is a, um, a question of a, a death of a thousand cuts, you know, like how do, you, how do you keep a story, make a point that goes, you know, that is 
Um, it's a clear question of timing, you know, so sometimes something is not really, it's not the bombshell, it's not the silver bullet, but if you got 80 of them, yeah. you can get through 80 days of a campaign, right? You've handled both Democratic and Republican I've candidates. had a few, uh, I've had a few Democratic candidates, yeah. Is it harder now? What well, I'm wondering if it's harder now to get Republican candidates, because... Oh, uh, I don't do, well, I don't do any uh, partisan opposition research oh. at all. Long, that's, that last partisan campaign would have been 2006, and that was Arnold's re-election. Wow, so you've been... Uh, so I've been out of it for a long time, and and um, and so uh, so one of the things that's sort of fun for me is to go back and, and meet these this current generation of Oppo researchers and look at it through their eyes. So um, so I'll, yeah. So the perspective of the show is an uh, you know is an insider, uh, but from a from a different era probably. And and so I like one of the one of the, you know I'll be exploring the opposition research files on Richard Nixon that are at the Kennedy Library, you know, and our first episode goes back to what we think is the first uh, instance of oppo research in presidential campaigning. I won't, I won't, uh, I won't spoil it for the listener, but that's... I can't say so without giving the big reveal, although I should say people have any interest in this at all. Your podcast is really well done. Uh, My one complaint is that it was only 20 minutes long, and that instance of that first instance of... uh, Opposition research. I told John, I was like, I feel like I could have listened to a eight week series just on that campaign because it seems like there's just so much there and it would have been so interesting. So that would be my one criticism. Like, I really wanted more, and I felt like you just barely scratched the surface of this incredibly fascinating moment in history, American history. Well, we might, you know, go back to it depending on. Um, uh, you know, timing. But um, also, we also got feedback from people like, oh, thank you for not doing a 45-minute podcast. Uh-huh. 20 minutes was just perfect. So, you know, it, it, some, some may take longer, some may, may take less. What, yeah. what happens when you have a really target-rich environment like Trump? Well, this is actually a really interesting question, and I think that's going to be one of the uh, central focuses of the podcast this year is, has opposition research changed in the Trump era. So we're going to spend a lot of time looking at 2016 and what what opposition research was done and was not done by all parties and 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 how is it that after he's elected reporters go to source material that was always in the public domain yeah, right. and then earn Pulitzer prizes for for doing work that on um, material that's a lot of it was in the public domain, and then also what is happening in the you know in this current environment, and a person like Trump, um, it, it is uh, how do you now it's he's an incumbent right so like for example tracking which is the practice of monitoring a candidate to catch them at an unguarded moment, saying something stupid like Mitt Romney famously did in two thousand twelve. Um, I'll explain what that is. That is sort of out the window now because how do you don't track Trump? Trump is everywhere. Biden's everywhere, right? Their disclosures, it struck me, public record disclosure. I remember the New York Times did stories on assessments of his properties being altered in order to get loans, being altered in order how much the property was valued. Uh, real estate sales, that business with uh, what started out, I think, as a condominium and tried back on how they were falsifying the level of vacancies and the level of people who are living there in order to get better loans. I mean, the whole, 
one or two of those disclosures would have finished, it seems to me like a Richard Nixon, for example. Yeah. So, so we'll uh, we'll explore that. You know, uh, we'll from both both parties. And I want to I want to talk to uh, the researchers who found things that nobody wanted to read, or who didn't have the budgets to to look into things that needed to be looked into because it's you know it's pretty time consuming. Uh, Trump, is, for example. Um, is uh, he did not authorize a vulnerability study uh, in the campaign? Somebody said, "Hey, I, you know, I think we should hire a team of people to sort of just come up with all of the things that are kind of come at you, so we can prepare response." Yeah, sure. And he said, "Why bother?" He's like, "No, don't." Hey, he was right. <laughs> yeah, you know. So that's a it's sort of a, a rule of Oppo research is you you prepare, you know what's coming, and you prepare responses. Well, you mentioned Ace Smith, and didn't he famously do that for Bill Clinton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Ace is a friend, and and uh, um, and so this is sort of normal uh, to do that kind of work. But in Trump's case, it wasn't. And in the Republican side. Um, the primary, none of the other primary campaigns really had the budgets for opposition research, certainly not at the 80-person level or 30-person level. The super PACs, the Republican super PAC is not researching other Republicans. They were focusing on Hillary. And I don't know what happened. I don't really have a good feel yet for what was happening in the Hillary campaign or in the Democratic National Committee. Do the same firms do the vulnerability uh, studies as do the Apple research. Yeah, but you know, it's, I think the firm, the era of the firm is. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of firms, but they're none of them are huge, right? Sure. So yeah, but generally they would do both, and um, and so we, you know, we're, uh, I've already uh, reached out to a lot of Apple researchers. People have active practices in this, and you know, I want to I want to give them a chance. These are it, usually they're very introverted, and. Um, you know, and politics is usually a game. It's a, the whole universe is a bunch of extroverts, right? But the Oppo researchers are all introverts, and they're all reading all day long that's and watching. You know, keeping their heads down, keeping right? their heads down and reading, and that's what gets them excited. Um, and it's, so, I think it's fun for them. It's fun. It's fun for me to uh, hear their stories. Has the, has the perception of the public, uh, their expectations about their candidates changed? The effectiveness of Oppo research. It just seems like, you know, Trump and grab him by the pussy and then Trump and all these other and paying off, you know, former lovers. And it seems like this would have been. Don't just say porn stars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, would have, it would have finished people years ago. Now it's like, at least with supporters. I mean. Uh, I uh, well, it, it depends on the race, and you yeah. know, it depends on on the situation. And what I what I have noticed, in as, as I started to assemble the history of opposition research, um, when um, when uh, it was revealed that the governor of Virginia appeared in his medical skill school yearbook wearing blackface, right. and he admitted it, but then he didn't admit it, and it was, that's kind of a, yeah. there was this sort of wave of commentary, including, I think, from Trump, which is like, where were the opposition researchers? They're supposed to protect us from this nonsense. They're supposed to have found this. And it was, you know, the accusation leveled against his Republican opponent was that it was malpractice by his campaign not to have done that work, right? And so it was sort of, so there's a situation where the opposition researcher is expected to be the fact checker and the whistleblower and um, and they was somehow they let us down by not finding this. Whereas uh, instead of 
been well flashing back to 1987 the researchers for the Dukakis campaign put things together and figure out that Joe Biden is plagiarizing his speeches and lifting other people's biographies and making them his own right and so so this blows up the Biden campaign in 1987. He got those in England, didn't he? Or didn't was it? It there? was Neil Kinn. There's a there were several th- plagiarism issues all at once, but uh-huh. the main one was Joe Biden claimed that his grandfather worked in a coal mine, and um, and then he you know his grandson is now and it ends up being the first in his class in law school. I may have first in his class a lot wrong, but he both had a, had a strong academic record and is now a candidate for president. And neither of those facts were true, right? So it blows up, and the um, when, in the, when and the question is who's who's behind this, right? So it is revealed eventually that it's the Dukakis campaign, and the staffers who oversaw that resign in disgrace. Now. That shows you how long ago 1988 was. Wow. That, that <laughs> yeah, really. the reveal of plagiarism was a cause for resignation. And, of course, now you, that person would be... And the people who should have resigned in disgrace were the people who told him to get in the tank. But they actually probably, <laughs> yeah. probably still working in D.C. right now. Yeah, the famous... What, you're, what Tim's referring to is, is a, a very famous ad where Dukakis trying to... Uh, counter charges that he was weak on defense in 1988, got into a tank and drove around for a photo op, and the Bush campaign thought he looked like Rocky the Squirrel and turned him into an ad, and that was pretty much the... It was funny. It was, at that point, it was uh, fish in a barrel for the campaign. But There was a campaign in the 80s, I think this is 88, it might have been 86 or 88, with March Fong Yu, who was running for Senate, I believe. And was actually in the race and was going and actually pulled out uh, because she did not want her. There were disclosures, there were issues about her husband, Henry, who's finances, who's apparently very wealthy, an Asian businessman. And she pulled out because she didn't want them disclosed. You know, was that an OPPO research thing or was that just something at her end? No, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, so uh, candidates, when they run for office, have to fill out a uh, statement of economic interest, and that is to go th- – it's twofold. It's to inform the public of potential conflicts of interest. Also, it's to educate the candidate and make them aware of potential conflicts yeah, of interest uh-huh. and go through that process to understand things that will not be acceptable were they to be elected. And um, – and so that's usually a starting point for um, uh, for op- an opposition researcher. You start with that. You first of all, you track down everything that's happening there, uh, look into the investments, and 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 see was there any connection between that investment and a, a campaign position or a vote or something like that. Um, also, is there anything that's been left out? You know, so. Uh, uh, and so that's that's usually usually the economic interest statement's quite quite interesting. Uh, Trump's is very is it, it ran it's like five hundred different business entities. Wow! And I I looked at it back in two thousand sixteen because I when I was following that campaign you know from a distance, and I was this repeated demand for his tax returns, and of course he was just saying you're not going to get them, 
And then when I you look at his economic interest statement, there's there's 500 businesses there. And I was like, well, an opposite researcher doesn't spend a lot of time asking for documents they don't have. You know, like, you, it seemed to me that that's where the starting point should have been. And I think that's where the reporters eventually. Yeah, eventually. And of those five hundred businesses, three hundred of them had gone bankrupt or something. Well, I, yeah, I don't know exactly, but you know, the Trump University is there and everything else. So, um, um, so that's um, uh, it's a starting point. And, uh, and uh, candidates that don't aren't comfortable with the disclosure. Um, some, I guess some, in her case, she decided she wasn't worth it. Joe, one last question. is uh, What's the future of OPPO research? Is it more important now than it's ever been? Is it How's it changed or will it change? Well, we'll try to uh, explore that a bit. It feels like you know the difference between the library and the microfilm and then the, yeah. and the and video and the internet and social media, it's really just the, the, the raw materials of OPPO's research seem to be changing. Um, and uh, but the um, the demand for information um, seems to be holding pretty constant. Um, uh, the um, I think people are, um, uh, are 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 skeptical of um, you know, political information, and also they're skeptical about reporting and what moves around social media. And so it's possible that an, the OPPO researcher in, in the, the role of an OPPO researcher as a fact checker might become more, more important and more valuable uh, over time. Um, uh, it's, you know, like, like we're, in the podcast we're going to talk about, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about Bobby Kennedy and OPPO. We're going to talk about Nixon. We're talking about each of the major. Hopefully get Ted Kennedy OPPO. Ted Kennedy Oppo. I wonder if he another target rich environment. I wonder if uh, I wonder if I know. Probably uh, probably doesn't make. But uh, I'm gonna. Re- I have a. I have an amazing Jimmy Carter Oppo research document, which I will release this summer. That will just make everybody laugh. Um, so um, uh, so we're trying to tell the history, explain practice, how it works through the eyes of people in both both parties, and also uh, authors, historians. And other observers of the political process, you know how how did the uh, how did Oppo research uh, shape that a, a specific election or a specific moment? We also want to get into that as well. So we're looking at it from uh, the consumer standpoint as well. And it's a you know it's, I spent you know a decent part of my professional life in, in kind of the, the first wave of the you know private sector Oppo research. You know, I was uh, in '84. I was in the first team that decided that that computer might be helpful in that opposition research problem. So we had a computer at the Republican National Committee, and we had people that were reading newspaper articles, marking them up, and typing them into terminals so we could have this database of tens of thousands of nuggets, right? I had access to one of the few laser printers in the District of Columbia that was not that were not, that was in the civilian hands because we had to produce written materials for the president's yeah, viewing right. quickly. Right, uh, we couldn't have it in our own office; it was too valuable. We had to actually I had to take an elevator down several floors to get my printout from the laser printer. Uh, so that was my that was sort of there at the moment where computers. Yeah. Became attached to Oppo for the very first time. So this got this got covered in the New York Times after the election. Like like what happened and how was it possible? That was a big deal in reporting too. Computer assisted reporting. 
and reporters that knew how to deal with computers were like gods in their newsrooms. Well, I got asked about rapid response because I, I ran uh, rapid response at the White House in the Reagan second term, and rapid was was actually typing it up, putting, print, making copies, and putting it in envelopes and mailing it. <laughs> so, uh, so I, you know, I have, a, I have this uh, you know, early history, some of the formative years of you know, how this, as this process became a bigger part of uh, politics at all levels. You know, I worked on congressional campaigns, Senate campaigns, gubernatorial, and, of course, and presidency. And so... Um, um, it's fun for me to share some of these stories with people. I'll be teaming up with co-hosts through the summer, uh, my friends who are reporters or writers or scholars of, of the political process, and together here and there we'll uh, interview people, and um, we're already at work on uh, the next few episodes. Right. Joe Redota, good luck with the podcast, and thank you very much for being here. And we should probably tell people where to find it. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so the website is oppofile.com. Uh, it's at oppofile on uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook. And um, you can send us an email. I think it's at oppofilepodcast at gmail.com. We'll double-check that. We'll double-check that. Um, but it's uh, on, um, it's on uh, Apple and it's on Spotify, and in our first week, right out of the box, we made top 100 history podcasts on Apple. So we have really cool. Yeah. How many listens is, is that? Do you know? I don't think it's in the billions, but it's a decent start. So billions and billions. It's probably a few more than the Capital Weekly podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're looking to crack a hundred pretty soon. Uh, not not the top 100, actually 100 listens. <laughs> Well, I uh, appreciate uh, being able to talk to you again. And thanks, thanks, thanks for having me on. Yeah. appreciate it. Thanks thank a lot, Joe. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Sure, John. And this is John Howard saying we'll see you next time around. Thank you.